Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 261. And believe it or not, we are approaching the end of our time in Karathras and the end of our time in Chapter 3 of Book 2, which um, I can't really explain why it is that book Chapter 3 has taken us so long. That Chapter 2 took us a long time was no surprise to anyone. Um, chapter three is a little harder to explain. Zeno's paradox, yeah, quite possibly, quite, quite possibly. Um, uh, Karathras is just another weather top, yeah, something like that, something like that. Anyway, um, I am uh, uh, I am delighted today. I had a really fun time. I had a um, I had a slightly. Uh, 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 sort of Tolkienian experience last night. I was um, writing the draft of the next chapter of my book. It's the first chapter on the Long Expected Party. And I had a whole plan. Like I had an outline all made and everything. And then I started writing the chapter and it just like went in a completely different direction than I was expecting. I ended up writing a totally different chapter than what I thought and not getting anywhere close to where I was going to go. And it was, uh, I was like, okay, yeah. Um, I've uh, I've read about this kind of <laughs> this this kind of experience. <laughs> so um anyway, yeah, it was um it was um but it was but it was really fun. I'm uh, I'm I'm really excited for how it turned out. The first this chapter is is going to be a little bit short because the divisions of my discussion of chapter 1 of the long expected party are kind of necessarily uneven. I'll be spending a lot of time with the ring. But um, yeah, it was a very unexpected chapter, JJ. No question. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, it was it was uh, it was it was super fun. So I'm getting ready for that. That this is the chapter that will um, drop for subscribers uh, in a couple weeks on the uh, the 15th of May. So I'm uh, I was going to say I'm ahead of the game, but no, I'm on schedule. Which feels like being ahead of the game, to be perfectly frank. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Why follow the original plan when you can do something better? Well, that's what I kept telling myself, Arnas, over the course of the evening last night. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, oh man, uh, Ambrosius, it was absolutely what uh, how a lot of the Lord of the Rings happened. Um, and actually, the irony, Ambrosius, is. What I was writing about last night when I got all off track was about the relationship between the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like I kind of doomed myself by writing in my first paragraph about how Tolkien sat down, you know, to write one thing uh, and then ended up writing something quite different. And uh, like, <laughs> wouldn't you know it? That's exactly what happened to me. Um, but uh, anyway, it was fun. It was fun. I had a, I had a, I, I had a, I had, a, I had both a good time with the writing. Like I was really enjoying what I was discovering and writing as I was going. Um, but it, it was also being kind of aware of the, of the irony of the situation was also uh, was also kind of <laughs> it was also kind of fun. Scholarship imitates art. That's that's exactly right, Matt. That's exactly it. Um, so anyway, so that was a lot of fun. I wanted to just uh, uh, tell you about a couple things that are coming up at Signum. First of all, this uh, so next week is the beginning of our summer semester, uh, and we've got a really fun uh, and very different uh, for us uh, course that we're uh, teaching in our MA program this term. Uh, Tolkien Illustrated: Picturing the Legendarium. This is the first time we've done. 
essentially an art history class uh, at Signum uh, within our master's program. Uh, Joel Mariner is our visiting lecturer who is teaching. Uh, this course is about basically the history of Tolkien illustrations. Um, he's going to be looking at the way in which Tolkien, uh, uh, Tolkien's work, Tolkien's Legendarium, has been approached by different illustrators over the decades. Um, it's going to be a really, really fascinating class. I wanted to tell people about that. Of course, only people who are enrolled in our master's degree program uh, can take the course for credit. Though it's not too late. If you still want to apply, we could probably get you in before the semester starts. But um, uh, but anyway, it's going to be really cool. You can it's Because it's one of our, uh, one of our, our, our new live courses, uh, it's open to anyone who wants to audit it so we can you can you can do what we call a premiere audit which just means you 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 just get to sort of sit in on the lectures and uh, you know, enjoy uh, Joel's teaching uh, as he goes through or you can do a discussion audit which means you get to do that and you get to take part in the weekly discussion sections as well um, but you don't have to write the papers so anyway those are those are two different auditing options that are available for folks um, so if you um uh, go to the Signum University website and then go into the MA in Language and Literature. You'll be able to find uh, the course and you can uh, you can register here to audit. It's it's going to be a really a really fun opportunity. Um, very as I say, a very different kind of course than we've offered than we've offered before. Um, I also wanted to just kind of touch in with our space program, which I haven't done in a little while. And man, like. If you don't keep your eye on our space program, like you find uh, we're doing all of these things, right? I mean, just glancing through, the, these are the modules that are coming up for June, right? So that means that these modules are candidates right now, so they're up for voting. So these are all of the modules that we are prepared to offer in the month of June, and we're, we're going to see which ones people are actually wanting to take right now. Um, so people who own tokens uh, can vote uh, to see which, you know, to show us which you know of these modules they're they're wanting to take in June, and then if we get enough students, we run it, and if we don't, we you know put push it back and we uh, try to try it again on another time and see if uh, that month works out better for people. Um, so that's kind of how that works. So check out check out the cool things that are candidates uh, for uh, for June. We've got um, African musicology for beginners. African musicology. That's a totally that's a totally new thing. We of course have James Tauber's awesome journey through the history. Um, uh, this is from his History of Middle Earth series. Uh, so he's been going every month. So for this 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 calendar year, he's doing the entire twelve volume series of the History of Middle Earth, uh, going through uh, going through the entire the entire series. So he's up to the Return of the Shadow. Uh, so if you wanted to get in um, on the you know get a, a you know this really awesome crash course with James Tauber on the the writing of the Lord of the Rings and watch Tolkien have the experience that I was just describing of discovering things and going off in unexpected directions. Uh, you could take James Tauber's uh, history of the Lord of the Rings class uh, there. Um, several sections of that. We're of course offering Greek, our book club, Chinese, classical Chinese. We've never offered classical Chinese before. That's totally new. Um, we got an awesome uh, uh, a creative writing uh, opportunity with Sparrow. Writing computers. I love this. So this is for creative writers who want to act, who don't know anything about computers and want to actually know how to talk about computers and their stories. <laughs> Things like, how does hacking actually work? <laughs> Which so many movie screenplay authors might have uh, 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 profited from that. A class on C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, continuing our Egyptian hieroglyphic series. Um, 
we have um, all right, Nancy teaching exploring Natsume's Book of Friends. Really cool. Smith of Wooten Major. Um, introduction to book binding praise. That's your class. Introduction to binding books by hand. So cool. Um, an, an introduction to to Mahayana Buddhism. Um, continuing our Japanese class, Klingon happening, right? We're, we're, we're bringing Klingon back uh, for, for, for June. So if you always wanted to learn Klingon, you can. Um, this is a class that I think is, is, is really, really neat. The introduction to writing in community. One of the things that our creative writing community in space, which is just a really wonderful community of writers. Um, uh, Sparrow is sort of our, our, our leader uh, of our creative writing program there. And one of the things that Sparrow has been very passionate about has been building a supportive community for beginning writers. And I can say from experience, um, not my own personal experience, but from experience of members of my immediate family, that um, uh, the community in space, uh, the way that a lot of people I know who write, maybe, you know, who just recently have begun writing, I've never really done, you know, creative writing or creative writing courses or anything like that, um, but do write themselves and might be interested to talk about things. But, um, you know, maybe you're, you're worried that you're going to get your stuff ripped to shreds, you know, if you, um, if you share it, you know, you want to kind of make yourself vulnerable in that way. Um, the way, the sort of approach that they have to writing and community, to, to uh, supporting each other, is really um, uh, is really delightful. So um, that's that's one I would particularly recommend. Introduction to writing and community. There, um, we keep on. We're continuing our Korean class. We're now t- teaching Japanese, Korean, and Chinese, which is really cool. Um, uh, Larry Swain continuing his Life in the Middle Ages series. So this is a whole series of, of modules that he's doing on life in the Middle Ages. Like what was, what were things actually like? Like what does the evidence show us about the Middle Ages? Um, yeah, the Middle High German class. Oh my goodness. Like be still my heart for the Middle High German class. Um, yeah, yeah. Isaac has been doing that. So neat. Um uh, uh, Stoicism. We're doing so much more like philosophy stuff than we've been. Um uh, starting a series on the dark is rising. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, a module on on Le Mort d'Arthur. Absolutely on the Iliad in translation. Oh, by Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. And New Better Do Better uh, of TikTok fame is teaching a class on the realm of Arnor. So uh, good to have New Better back teaching another module. He was uh, uh, he taught with us at the end of last year. Uh, fun to have him back. Anyway, so much. I mean, it's just like you just go through and then Chris Bartlett teaching uh, a creative writing workshop as well. Um, just as we have the other creative writing workshop for people who, uh, you know, want to think about how to. Uh, deal with computers. Here's Christopher talking about people dealing with uh, bodies, their own bodies and things. So anyway, really, really fun stuff. We got a whole wide selection of, uh, of things. I get so excited every time I look through our upcoming catalog. Uh, so many exciting things that are um, being offered in space these days. So if you've, um, if you've, if you ever thought of giving space a shot, there's still like a week or so that where you can, if you know, so everybody who has tokens now can vote on one of these. You know, you can you can still like decide whether these are going to be, um, you know, probably not all of these are going to run in June because we'll see how the voting goes. Um, but uh, people who have tokens urge you to vote. Uh, if you uh, if you don't, you can get some and still have plenty of time to vote. Uh, anyway, it's been uh, it's been really cool. It's been really exciting. Um, 
So uh, and if you you know if you're in a place where you're like I don't really know like what are space modules like how does this work send us an email S- send an email to space at signumu.org and our awesome space team um, led by Jenny Gosselin will get in touch with you and will help to kind of walk you through um, we have a uh, a wonderful team of like real human beings who will uh, be delighted to kind of follow up with you and talk with you about, um, you know, what space is about and what you might want to do. And um, uh, yeah, Jenny is fantastic praise, isn't she? Um, Just to, uh, again, it's sometimes I find that people, um, I I was talking with my sister-in-law who was uh, signing up for something and she was like, so what happens next? And I'm like, well, now they'll get in touch with you. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, like a human being will like, reach out to you and get in touch to answer your question. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it works. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, so just wanted to share, uh, these exciting things coming up. Um, so many fun things happening at Signum these days. All right, but let's go back to Karathras. So we just left Boromir carrying Pippin, on his back, and we were sort of looking at Pippin's point of view. Um, we, we got a brief paragraph of Pippin's perspective uh, as he was being carried on Boromir's back, and we were uh, thinking about um, we were thinking about the uh, sort of sad parallels, right, between Pippin clinging to the back of Boromir uh, there on Karathras, and Pippin being slung brutally across the back of the Urukai, uh, who capture him and orc drag him across Rohan later on. And of course, like that, it is going to be from almost exactly that position on the back of the orc, not on the back of. Um, of Boromir, sadly, in which he's going to be watching the death of Boromir before long. Um, And um, that is a uh, particular, particularly poignant uh, parallel there. Yes, Bjorning, isn't that fun? Um, Pippin uh, is a recurring backpack, right? And Merry becomes Master Bag, uh, right? Who has to pack himself up, uh, according to Elfhelm. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it is, um, that is fun to think about. Anyway, now we come to the rest of the party finally escaping. They came at length to the great drift. It was flung across the mountain path like a sheer and sudden wall, and its crest, sharp as if shaped with knives, reared up more than twice the height of Boromir. But through the middle, a passage had been beaten, rising and falling like a bridge. On the far side, Merry and Pippin were set down, and there they waited with Legolas for the rest of the company to arrive. After a while, Bo- Boromir returned carrying Sam. Behind in the narrow but now well-trodden track came Gandalf, leading Bill, with Gimli perched among the baggage. Last came Aragorn, carrying Frodo. They passed through the lane, but hardly had Frodo touched the ground, when, with a deep rumble, there rolled down a fall of stones and slithering snow. The spray of it half blinded the company as they crouched against the cliff, and when the air cleared, and when the air cleared again, they saw that the path was blocked behind them. Okay, yes, slithering snow is interesting. Uh, yes, Boromir's horn, you were right about uh, nobody carrying a dwarf, um, and uh, it seems to me fairly uh, obvious why they wouldn't be carrying uh, Gimli. He must be really heavy, 
I mean, he's wearing chainmail, which is heavy enough on its own, by the way. Um, and uh, a uh, a nice solid dwarf like Gimli wearing chainmail, I wouldn't want to be backpacking him out through the snow myself either. Um, yes, heavy, really heavy and cold, Aranas. Absolutely, it would. It would. Um, okay, uh, let's look first at the description that we are given. We've been told the basic facts about the wall of snow um, that is blocking the way, right? Um, but now we see it, and we're still seeing it from the point of view of Pippin, right? When we get, they came at length, we're getting, it's Boromir and Pippin that we're still talking about there, right? Um, uh, they came at length to the Great Drift, it was flung across the mountain path like a sheer and sudden wall, and its crest, sharp as if shaped with knives, reared up more than twice the height of Boromir. And I absolutely agree, as an Ulbazar, that um, the alliteration there is, I think, very clear, and I think quite clearly deliberate. Um, the word which to me makes it obvious that he is going for the alliteration on the sh sound is the word shaped, right? He could he could have said as sheer as a sudden wall, uh, like a sheer and sudden wall, spontaneously, and then compared you know said how sharp the top was. Like that could have happened, right? But adding shaped with knives, um, that's the one which for me, exactly carved with knives would seem, but, but yes, like to, uh, sheer and sudden wall and it's crest sharp as this, as if shaped with knives. Um, I think that he's really playing on that sound. Um, why, why? Well, one effect of, oh, I mean, first of all, um, uh, one reason just to do alliteration in the first place is simply that he likes the sound of it, right? Um, but um, but more than that, I always feel it's hard. I find when I'm reading alliterative poetry, in particular, um, it's you can't make too much of this because, of course, it's. Um, The connection, the repeated sounds, the connection of sounds is designed to create a kind of cadence, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that a particular word that is used in the alliteration is itself intrinsically more important than a word that is not part of the alliterative pattern. But it is equally inevitable that you hear that word more than you hear other words. Um, and the same is true of rhyme. I mean, you could say, well, you know, rhyme is just the technique by which, you know, they establish the sound shape of the poem. It doesn't mean that two words that are made to rhyme with each other are necessarily intrinsically connected in any way. And I would say, well, sure, that could potentially be true. And yet, you hear them as a pair. Um, so whether or not that is the reason you chose those words to rhyme, um, it is nevertheless an effect 
of the rhyme. And it's one of the way, by the way, in which um, rhyming poetry, this is one of several ways in which I think rhyming poetry can be bad, um, is you might have a perfectly, f perfectly good rhyme when viewed from a purely aural perspective, right? That is just the sound of the rhyme is euphonious. It works perfectly well. Um, but the, um, the, uh, um, the pairing, like the words that are paired together are like, end up being sort of like stupid and, and, and even comical, uh, undermining the effect of the poem. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's, um, you always have to be aware of these connections that are being made because when you're rhyming or when you're alliterating, you are making links between words. So that's another thing that I think of. And certainly, Matt, as you're suggesting there, um, there is a, a sort of an overall um, sound profile that he's building. Um, and uh, Matt says he's drawing on the same sound profile as Robert Frost does in Stopping by Woods uh, to capture the hissing sound of snow. Um, Yes, the sheer and sudden wall, sharp and shaped with knives. Um, yes, yes. Um, this is a thing, arguably, we should have been paying attention to this for years. Um, I think this happens a lot when he's doing descriptions of things, like when he's doing what is frequently called, though I think often misleadingly called, landscape description. Um, notice that we also get, after we've gotten uh, sheer, sudden, sharp, shaped, we then also get Boromir beaten bridge, right? Right after that. Um, the... Um, I don't believe that there is a, a particular, like an exact pattern. I don't think that he's shaping this paragraph in the way that he might shape like a, a rhyming paragraph or uh, a particular stanza of poetry or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. But but you're right, Vardendil, that we can't stop, if we're thinking about the alliteration, we can't stop after that first paragraph. Um, uh, just listen for alliteration as I read the whole thing through again. They came at length to the great drift. It was flung across the mountain path like a sheer and sudden wall, and its crest, sharp as if shaped with knives, reared up more than twice the height of Boromir. But through the middle a passage had been beaten, rising and falling like a bridge. On the far side Merry and Pippin were set down, and there they waited with Legolas for the rest of the company to arrive. After a while Boromir returned carrying Sam. Behind in the narrow but now well-trodden track came Gandalf, leading Bill with Gimli perched among the baggage. Last came Aragorn carrying Frodo. They passed through the lane, but hardly had Frodo touched the ground when with a deep rumble there rolled down a fall of stones and slithering snow. The spray of it half blinded the company as they crouched against the cliff, and when the air cleared again they saw that the path was blocked behind them. Did you hear all that? Um, uh, yeah, Vardendil to pick up on the, the, 
one that you were talking about. With a deep rumble, there rolled down a fall of stones and slithering snow. Uh, man, like how you get the, the symmetry of deep rumble and rolled down and stones and slithering snow right after that. Um, with fall picking up on Frodo. Hardly had Frodo touched the ground when with a deep rumble there rolled down a fall of stones and slithering snow. Um, yes, blocked behind. Right, the path was blocked behind them. The company as they crouched against the cliff. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Graham, yes, I agree. That last sentence is, is really crunchy, uh, as he says. Absolutely. And when, the, and when the air cleared, right, the spray of it, the spray which picks up on the stones and slithering snow from the previous sentence, the spray of it half blinded the company as they crouched against the cliff. And when the air cleared again, they saw that the path was blocked behind them. Um, blinded, blocked, behind, uh, stone, slithering, snow, spray, company, crouched, cliff, cleared, right? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, it is, um, and I agree, Bjorning, it's, it's, it's sort of entangled, multiple alliterative connections all happening at once. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, this, so in part, like, I, I, I really do think this is just kind of how, Tolkien thought. I mean, you can only you can only read and write so much alliterative poetry without just thinking this way. Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Gildalowen, his expertise in Germanic poetry comes out. It really, it really does. Um, notice also the tendency uh, to go in threes. I know that there are some fours, but notice it's even there, it's three and one, like stones and slithering snow. And then spray in the next line, which sort of interlaces back and connects with the previous sentence, just as company crouched cliff, and then we get cleared in the next clause, right? Um, and again, that too, like the, the very shape of that is reminiscent of uh, of Germanic poetry, right? Um, which has tends to have the three alliterative beats per line, um, four beats per line, but uh, two to three of them alliterating. Um, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think what we're hearing here is prose written by somebody who is so steeped in alliterative poetry and who so loves alliterative uh, poetry that he can't help himself, right? Um, but um, uh, but certainly, I think there's more that happens here. Um, notice another thing here. Um, another thing that you can say about all of those, almost all. Uh, the D... The D's, not the R's, but the D's. Okay, the S's are different too. I'm, I was saying that there's there's a lot of plosives, is what I was gonna say. Um, the D's, the B's, the C's. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Matt says he does this kind of thing a lot in the battle scenes involving the Rohirrim. Um, yes, yeah, Matt. I'm gonna be really interested to watch that because, um, of course, it's of particular relevance uh, there. Um, there will be, there's one scene in particular, right, that I that it makes me think of, that is the scene when Aemir uh, breaks spontaneously into alliterative poetry on the battlefield, 
right? Um, Mourn not over much, mighty was the fallen, meat was his ending, remember? Um, by the way, you hear it there. That's a perfect example of what I was just describing. Mourn not over much, mighty was the fallen, meat was his ending. Right, you've got the three M's in the first line. Mourn not over much, uh, mighty was the fallen. Fallen is the fourth beat in that line, right? Which does not alliterate as the fourth one pretty much never does. But then the next line begins with, an, with another uh, M, right? Um, meat was his ending. Um, and uh, um, so, it, again, it not only is alliterating in the line, but that, that fourth M kind of uh, links the uh, first line in, right? Um, but, um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, plosives, um, JJ. Plosives are any consonant uh, that comes out with a rush of air. Um, so T's, B's, P's, uh, D's, uh, K's, G's, um, the ch sound, the sh sound those are all those are all plosives um yeah yeah um uh the ones that will pop a microphone exactly right exactly right yeah because of so much air coming out all at once uh that's exactly that's exactly right um yeah scott um i will not pretend that i was not i was i was just gonna say yeah everything on the first two lines of the tengwar chart that's um those are the plosives uh, grade one and grade two, evil Dr. Cannon. Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, I, um, yeah, yeah, I was, I was totally picturing the Tengwar in my head, Matt. I was, I absolutely was. Um, uh, there it is. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Those are our, those are our plosives. Um, and of course, again, this is how Tolkien set up Tengwar because he was, uh, huge nerd when it came to this, but, um, anyway, anyway, um, uh, but, um, so, oh yeah, sorry, sh not sh, sh is a fricative, you're right, I meant j, uh, the ch and the j, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, right, well, anyway, um, uh, it was, um, uh, Never mind. I'm getting way, way off track. Let's get back to our let's get back to our paragraphs here. Um, I think it is it is always amazing to notice the um, the way in which Tolkien shapes his prose like this. Um, the alliterative patterns throughout um, these two paragraphs, which are just describing the drift um that you know the drift of snow that they're coming across and then describing the rest of the party coming down and then the you know the little avalanche that happens right um he doesn't need he's not using fancy words right this is not um this is not a moment for, you know, what some would call purple prose that is like really fancy ornate language that like comes out of your as, as if you're speechifying. Right. And he doesn't he doesn't do that. Right. Most people, I bet, um, uh, read through this paragraph without noticing any of these things. Right. Um, but um, but you can see how his prose is shaped 
in these moments, is influenced in these moments. And this is one of the things, by the way, um, I never... Uh, I don't actually spend much time trying to convince people to read Tolkien if they haven't, or I guess I do that a little bit. But if somebody has read Tolkien and didn't like it, I rarely try to convince them. Um, mostly because I, I, I think there is really... There are some people for whom Tolkien is not going to give them what they're looking for from a book, you know. Um, and anytime I'm talking to somebody who can read paragraphs like this and just come away saying, yeah, I mean, he's just like describing stuff, right? Like he just, there's so long passages of him just like talking about you know, trees and stuff. And I'm like, I hear you. I hear you. Um, uh, but if you can't, even if you're not aware of it, there is a kind of, um, there is a, uh, uh, a quality to Tolkien's prose that is just different. Right. Um, and even if you don't, I think almost everybody who loves Tolkien is like influenced, affected by it on some level, right? Um, and if you like, if you can't, if it's because again, some people are just they're they're interested in different things. Honestly, it's it's exactly like um, when I'm having a conversation with someone about an author like Jane Austen, and anybody who reads a Jane Austen novel and can say something like, "But nothing happened," right? I'm like, okay. Right. I, th this book is not for you. Right. This book is not going to give you what you're looking for. If you can read Pride and Prejudice and say nothing happened. Right. Um, uh, but. Um, uh, yeah, and that's fine. Like, I, you know, like takes all kinds. Right. Um, but um, uh, anyway, it's, <laughs> it's no, I'm not shaking the dust off my feet as I'm leaving their house or city, JJ. It's not like that. Um, I'm um, uh, I'm just saying uh, that I th it, it's it is one of the things which Tolkien is is so polarizing, and it's one of the reasons also that I think there are relatively few casual Tolkien fans, like book fans. I mean, there are plenty of casual movie fans, um, but. Um, casual um uh casual Tolkien book reading fans are relatively infrequent right like usually either either get it or you don't you know either either love it or you don't um and um yeah anyway i know this is hardly unique to Tolkien that's why i brought in the jane austen example because i know that that same kind of thing you can see happen have happening all over the place but um but again even when you're not aware of it what he does with his prose it sort of sort of seeps in right um yeah yeah um anyway um so That he is shaping. So I, 
partly again, I think partly why he shapes his prose in this way in a passage like this is simply because he can't help himself. Right. I do think that that's definitely part of what's going on here. Right. Um, but I think it's equally obvious uh, that he um, I think it's I think it's equally obvious that he is not, he's not trying to help it here. In fact, I think we can see him going out of his way. Um, the places that seem to me most obvious as evidence that he is fully cognizant of the sound shape that he is uh, he is creating. I get the word shaped with knives, which that's an unusual word. It's an, uh, it's an unusual verb to use with knives in that regard. And the other one, Vardendil, is the one that you... Um, um, uh, the one that you were pointing out down at the bottom. Deep rumble there rolled down a fall of stones and slithering snow. Um, even apart from the stones and slithering snow, which is all very close together, followed almost immediately by company crouched against the cliff. Um, it becomes so dense that it's hard to, uh, you know, uh, hard to imagine that even somebody who has only the tiniest fraction of Tolkien sensitivity to these kinds of sounds would not have noticed that he was doing it. Right. Um, but, um, but more than that, the rolled down, um, uh, the word down seems to me unnecessary. Right. Um, but anyway, um, the, the shape there again suggests, but yes, you do feel the rhythm of the falling rocks. Um, Sorry, I'm reading those last sentences again. They passed through the lane, but hardly had Frodo touched the ground when, with a deep rumble, there rolled down a fall of stones and slithering snow. The spray of it half blinded the company as they crouched against the cliff, and when the air cleared again, they saw that the path was blocked behind them. Um, I was that that time I was listening. I was listening for alliteration the last time I read it. That time I was listening to the, um, um, I was listening to the, like the, the metrical shape, the rhythmic shape of the words there. Um, it's not perfectly regular. Like it's not like he ad he adopts. He doesn't uh, adopt a, an even iambic um, uh, meter or anything like that. Um, I love the little, um, like, the variations when he does this like little anapestic thing in the middle. But hardly had Frodo touched the ground when, with a deep rumble, right, you hear it there. And then again, uh, uh, and when the air cleared again, they saw that the path was blocked behind them. The um, with a deep and that the path, uh, that kind of little uh, thing. Anyway, I love it. Okay. Um, but moving on from the shape, which the sound shape, which certainly gives these paragraphs a kind of weight. Again, even if you're unconscious of it, even if you don't, even if it doesn't make your conscious awareness, um, there's a there's a kind of shape and beauty. Um, uh, there's 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 a kind of shape and beauty to these paragraphs, which makes them striking. Right. Um, 
something significant definitely just happened here. Um, let's talk about Karathras, because I see that you guys are um, uh, are all already talking about that. What's Assuming that Gimli is correct, as Gimli himself certainly is, um, assuming that Gimli is correct, what... Um, how do we read this? The wall of snow, the great drift, was flung across the mountain path like a sheer and sudden... And by the way, um, uh, for, for the snow experienced in the room, what does it mean that the crest of the drift was sharp as if shaped with knives? One can see that in snow, right? But you see what that means, right? What that shows. I mean, it's not anything like really phenomenal, but it shows it shows the action of the wind, right? It shows how now obviously any snow drift is the action of the wind, right? But it um the word shaped is the is there doubly significant, right? Um this wall has been like there is reason to look at it and conclude. It's not mere superstition driving Gimli to say, see that, you know, Karathras has not forgiven us, and, you know, that drift was clearly uh, built up to, to uh, cut off our escape. Yeah, yeah, that drift totally was built up, and in fact, the very fact that the snow drops to almost nothing on the other side of it. Um, and if, as they're approaching it, as it seems to be described, um, so if you're coming towards the drift and the top of the, of the, of the front edge from your perspective is sharp like a knife at the top. That means that the wind was blowing from the other direction, right? So the wind was blowing from the other direction, leaving a really sharp edge uh, at the top of that drift. Um, and so, yeah, it it has... This wind has, has blown up the path, right, in order to create this drift of snow um, right there. Yeah, the purposeful direction... Um, of the wind in order to build the snow in exactly uh, in exactly this way, right? It has been shaped, um, and even the um, the two sort of uh, well, not exactly metaphors, like they literally beat a passage. There's nothing metaphorical about their beating a passage through the through the um, through the drift. Um, but the use of that word through the mi the middle of passage had been beaten um, suggests a kind of battle, right? That this is what Aragorn and Boromir were off doing. They weren't just making a path. They were, you know, they were fighting Karathras and April. Exactly. They were also building. They were beating a path and uh, and 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 building a bridge. Right. Um uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, this, the, the, the word beating, right, uh, invokes this idea. Um, and notice, by the way, that both of those two words, beaten and bridge, are also both part of one of those alliterative clusters. Boromir, beaten, bridge. So we've got their action of their sort of combat-like action, fighting against the snow, fighting against Karathras in the beating and then the bridge, right? The, 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 it's, it's like a bridge going from one place to another, going from danger to safety, 
right? Um, but of course, it's it's going to be arched like a bridge just because of all the snow. They're 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 working their way across and over, um, over and through. Um, obviously, they're not going to exert all of the effort to dig out a twelve foot drift right all the way down to the ground. They're gonna they're gonna go up and over across it. Um, and yet, instead of looking like going over a hill, which is would be a little, a slightly more literal image, right, of what they're doing, um, uh, beating it down into a manageable hill of snow that they can just cross crest over the top of. Um, instead, it's like a bridge, right? It is like the 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 path of escape, um, and um, uh, and yes, it, it certainly is, Bjorning. It very much. Um, it helps you to picture it and to feel like it's there. It gives a very clear mental and even, in a sense, physical picture um, of what's going on there. But again, the image that it presents, um, the the opening, the sense of like going from one world to it. They are leaving um, as if by crossing a bridge, going from one land that, you know, that, that crosses a border from one land to, to the other. They are leaving the realm of Karathras, right? They are leaving his his zone. Um, why is it that he built the bridge? The, sorry, built the wall there, the drift there. Why is it that the snow uh, dwindles to almost nothing below this point in the path? I I assume, believe um, that um, it's because. That's the edge of Karathras's domain, right? He, um, he's going to have boundaries, like Tom Bombadil has imposed boundaries on himself. Um, you know, Old Man Willow can't influence the trees in Hobbiton, right? Or even across the river, or even presumably in Buckland itself, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, the idea that this is, it, this is this is the boundary. Right, this is Karathras boundary, um, and uh, yeah, Bruiner to some extent, at least within this area, Karathras is the master, right? Um, yeah. Now, Bjorning, exactly what I'm. Uh, um, yeah, exactly. They've they've exited the locus of the genius loci, Graham. That Graham. That's exactly it. Um, but. Um, uh, Bjorning was just asking the question that I was coming back to. So, what do we conclude? What can we conclude that Karathras was um, doing here? Um, what kind of conclusions can we draw about Karathras? They, you know, they're speculative, so we have to, you know, we can't be too confident about this. But what does the what does the evidence seem to suggest? Um, one thing that I think is seems fairly striking to me. Uh, we have said before that it seems as if Karathras is trying to kill them, right? Um, but I think that this passage here suggests pretty, clean, pretty plainly that he's not trying to kill them. Uh, if he not only had more snow left, if he had more snow left to fling at them, as Gimli has said, why didn't he do it? Right? Why did the snow stop? If the snow had not stopped, it would have been much harder for them to escape. Right? Um, it was the stopping of the snow at dawn that enabled them to escape. Um, so, 
That's question number one. Question number two. Exactly, Josh. That's exactly it. If he can throw rocks, why didn't why didn't he uh, do that sooner? Yeah, exactly. Um, if uh, if this you know avalanche that comes through right after they leave uh, again, I guess you could argue that he aimed and that he missed, right? That he was trying to get him, uh, but that he missed. But that does not the impression that I get, right? Um, the timing of it is really emphasized. Hardly had Frodo touched the ground. When, with a deep rumble, there rolled down a fall of stones. His The contact of Frodo's feet with the ground seems as if to trigger, as if that is the thing that triggers the, the falling of the snow. So it's not like the stones were coming down and they... Ran really fast and, you know, got, like might happen in, you know, some thriller movie or something, right? Um, you know, with them, like, diving out of the way just in time as the avalanche, you know, comes through. That's not what happened, right? Yeah, praise, I hear that. And there were several people saying uh, a version of that, I think, that basically this seems to translate to and stay out, right? Yeah, I, I hear that, too. Um, I agree that that does seem to be the sort of emphasis there. Um Good. Sarah and uh, I think someone else was talking about this uh, before. Um, if um, uh, if they if Carothras just wanted them to leave, why why the wall? Why throw up the wall to prevent their escape? Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's possible faith that killing them is plan A. It is also possible, Aranos, we don't know the limits of Carothros's power. So, Aranos, it is possible that his control of the snow is not that precise, right? Um, but uh, as far as the falling snow is concerned, or maybe the avalanche, but notice that the avalanche, it's not just snow that comes down, it's, it's the stones, right? Um, it's like the, as if the mountain is shaking itself. Um, and as soon as Frodo's feet touch the ground uh, and um, sending the stones down, which dislodge the snow. Right. Um, but the drift and the precision shaping of the drift seems to suggest that he does have fairly precise control over the snow. Um yeah, so I agree with the sentiment of many of you that killing them seems not to have been his top priority. Um, stopping them going forward would um, uh, it certainly seems to be what does happen, right? Um, if we we're going to cheat just glance ahead, right? Gimli's words, in you know, his next words, enough, enough, we are departing as quickly as we may, suggest that Gimli's theory, right? Gimli, what Gimli is hearing is end, stay out, right? Um, Gimli believes that in leaving the mountain, they are doing what Carothros wanted, right? Um, and Gimli seems even to hope to appease 
Karathras by um, uh, by assuring him that they're leaving, right? And so again, Gimli's Gimli's own reading would seem to be that what Karathras wants was for them to was for them to to um, uh, to get off, right? Um, so the question then becomes again, why why the drift? Uh, the only thing that the he just wants them not to cross the pass. Um, the the only the only element that that leaves out is the most obviously deliberate element, right? Which is the throwing up of the the throwing up of the wall. Um, okay, uh, looking back at Matt's take uh, on Carothra's motivation, Carothra's the cruel is known for casually keeping people going. Um, keep people from going over the Redhorn Gate. He's going to work extra hard for an attempted crossing of an important mission, because that's what he does. Although Karathros is closing a door here in the way the Watcher in the Water, another alliterative being, uh, closes the doors of Moria on the company. Um, yes. Yes. We will be asking this question of the Watcher in the Water, too. Don't answer this question now, because we are not here today to talk about the Watcher in the Water yet. We're going to be getting there very soon. Um, but when we get when we do get there, I'm going to be asking this question. That is, what is the connection with Frodo exactly? Just as in both places we get or we're going to get a link to Frodo. Um, Carothros doesn't do his avalanche deal until Frodo comes through. And now it's very possible that the narrative in that paragraph, that last paragraph here on this slide, is just Frodo-centric because he is the point of view character and also quite likely the author of the passage, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, so it's possible that the appearance of Frodo centricity to things like the rock slide, right? The 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 avalanche there, um, is um, uh, you know it might be, um, it might possibly be a sort of illusion, but it at least invites the possibility that Carothros actually cares about Frodo. Can Carothros sense the ring? Is there any chance of it that Carothros can sense the ring? If so, does he care? And if he does, how does he care? What's he trying to do? Is he trying to catch them? Is he trying to keep them? Um, we do have a bit of a pattern emerging. Old Man Willow snares them, puts them to sleep, and then is gonna like entomb them. Um, does he eat hobbits? Like, is he gonna is is Old Man Willow actually carnivorous, or is there something else that happens there? Right, like, um, uh, like what does Old Man Willow eat when he can't get hobbit? Right, um, but um, uh, in any sense. Uh, in any case, like I, I don't think it's obvious that what he's looking for is just meat. There, right? Does he eat meat? Why would he eat meat? A willow tree, right? Um, is there some other sense, right? The 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 
they're not just like Mary and Pippin aren't just being chewed up. They're being absorbed, right, into Old Man Willow in some sense. The Barrowite, the Barrowite wants to keep them there, right? The incantation of the Barrowite is very clear on this point. He wants to make them, he wants to absorb them too, to make them like himself. Still on gold here, let them lie, right? Um, uh, cold be hand and heart and bone, right? He's, he's wanting to make them like himself. He's wanting to absorb them into the atmosphere there, right? Um, I wonder if Karathras is doing a similar sort of thing, right? Um, is Karathras, um, yeah, yeah. Darkwater, so, I mean, I agree. Uh, old Man Willow is, uh, seems like a bitter old tree. He is clearly a bitter old tree. Um, just as Karathras, as far as we can tell, is a bitter old mountain, right? Um, what I'm looking at with Old Man Willow there, what I'm looking at is, again, what he does to them, right? Um, if he's just a bitter old tree who bears grudges, he could have just killed them, right? I mean, he did kind of just try to kill Frodo. Like he was trying to drown him, right? Um... But anyway, uh, like he he already had plenty of opportunity. Um, uh, he already had plenty of opportunity to old man Willow, I mean, to crush Marion Pippin. Like he could have done it, um, but instead of just you know snapping them, breaking them, crushing them, killing them, which was in his power to do, he was instead like drawing them in, right? He was swallowing them um, in some way. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway. I agree. Somebody was just saying, and I've missed it, um, uh, that the that Karathras is almost the reverse. Yeah, Bjorning, yes, exactly. Um, Old Man Willow actively draws the hobbits to himself, right? They're trying to escape the old forest and their every path leads them down to the Withy Windle and to Old Man Willow, right? And it, it is the tenor of his song uh, to draw them, right? Um, the, uh, his cunning mazes, right? Remember Tom Bombadil talked about this. Karathras does seem to want the opposite, Right to prevent them from coming into his sphere of influence, perhaps in some way. Um, yeah. So, why? Why? Well, Jack, that's a really interesting point. Um, weren't they also taunting Old Man Willow? Um, yeah. Yeah, they were. Um, Think of Frodo's song, right? Um, Frodo sings a song first. Um, you know, the one about ending and failing? Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's interesting. Um, well, and Matt, that's exactly the question. Um, exactly the question is... Um, 
the ring is Karathras detecting the ring is it sensing the ring in some way and therefore singling them out is the ring itself acting um uh to like right, the ring is attempting to get back to Sauron and sort of protecting Frodo from beings like Karathras. It's possible. It's possible. Um Yeah. Um Yeah, it's hard to say. Now I I totally agree, Aranas. We don't have enough data points to really draw any firm conclusions here. Um and Tolkien frequently seems to be in the business of doing this kind of thing, right? To be in the business of um, leaving things like this to speculation. Um, remember, this is one of the things that I was saying you can see is a pretty consistent pattern uh, in his revision process as he's writing the book, is that as he revises, when he goes back and rereads stuff he tends to cut things. Um, he says more at first and then reduces the things that are said later on so that, you know, the desire to set elves on fire becomes only implicit rather than explicit. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, Of course, the other question which the text has invited us to ask, though to which it has provided us no answer, is there a chance that Karathras is actually in league with Sauron? Sauron has um, strange powers and many allies, right? Um, has, in that way, his arm grown long enough, right? Um is Karathras in some sort of league, right? And Vardendo, yeah, I don't suggest that Karathras is sort of loyal to Sauron, right? Um, but, uh, you know, Gandalf invites the question. Gandalf and Aragorn don't dismiss the idea that Sauron's power may be at work here, that Sauron's influence might in fact come this far. Um, they don't, they don't rule it out. They don't rule it out. Um, so was that the plan? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. And it's really, really hard to attribute any of this to the agency of the ring because nothing whatsoever is being said about the ring, right? Um, I mean, what reason do we have to um, believe that the ring is taking any action whatsoever, right? The only even vaguely indirect allusion or connection to the ring is through Frodo himself. Right, and his touching of the ground there at the end. Um, yeah, I um, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, I see people talking about Karathras being 
uh, perhaps not allied with Sauron, but maybe with Morgoth. I doubt it. I doubt it. I think that Karathras is probably a free agent, even free from Morgoth. Um, uh, surely influenced and corrupted by within the context of Arda Mard, right? And so therefore Morgoth is indirect, you know, has an indirect hand um, in what happened to Karathras. Um, but I believe that nothing is evil in the beginning and that Karathras was once a happy and well-adjusted mountain, um, but that he went, ba went bad. There are some mountains, you know, that go bad. I'm not talking about their rock, right? Um, uh, you know, there are some mountains, sound is a bell, but bad right through. And, um, uh, yeah, I think that that seems to me more likely, um, uh, what we, uh, what, what, what we're getting from Karathras, but I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, Kunkdator, yeah, some things are grumpy and hostile from the beginning. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and sometimes their hostility, as I think is perhaps even implied with Old Man Willow, when we hear about the grievances of the trees of the old forest, and when we're then reminded later on, sort of innocently by Elrond, that the old forest is the last remaining bit of a huge forest that once covered that entire area, and all the rest of it has been destroyed by, you know, those um, usurpers walking around on two legs, um, hacking, burning, doing all of those things. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yes, gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning. Exactly. Mountains, probably not going to be motivated by quite the same thing. Um, but, um, but who knows? But who knows? Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, let's... Last thing I wanted to talk about before we leave this passage. Did you notice how carefully... The departure, um, how carefully the departure was orchestrated here. Uh, this always reminds me. Um, this always reminds me of that. Uh, you know that like logic puzzle where you have like, um, you know, like a, a like a, a a predator, a prey animal, and a plant or something or like a bag of grain or something and you've got to cross the river and you can only carry two in a boat but you can't like leave the you know the, whatever it is like the cat and the bird on the one bank at the same time or else the cat will kill the bird you, you know that that kind of uh, cabbage goat wolf yeah there you go that's it that's the one I, I couldn't remember which animals and plants were normally uh, <laughs> normally used in that particular logical puzzle um, fox geese grain yeah I think I've heard that one too Exactly. Um, notice how much like this, um, that particular kind of uh, uh, logic puzzle, this situation was. Um, except in this case, it's all about Frodo and the ring. Uh, how do you get Frodo and the ring out of the snow? 
you he can't go first because if he goes first then he like if he and Sam went first for instance then he and Sam are are down with only Legolas right while well, everybody else Boromir and and Aragorn and Gandalf and everybody are are stuck up you know in the snow up up the hill right they're they're cut off um you can't you don't want to but you don't want to leave him alone up in the snow right so you know but so just notice how careful they are first Boromir and Aragorn take Merry and Pippin and they leave the comparatively expendable Merry and Pippin right uh down below the drift and return for them but they don't just come back with um, they don't just come back with Frodo and Sam, like you sort of might think, right? Um, instead, they come down uh, with... They do come down with Frodo and Sam. Though again, notice how that's carefully done. Boromir carries Sam, and Aragorn carries uh, carries Frodo, right? But Gandalf and Gimli and Billiponi accompanying them, accompany them then at the same time. Um... Anyway, I, I think it's interesting. It's it seems to me important. Um, it seems to me important that Frodo, the the fact that Aragorn is carrying Frodo, and that Frodo is always in the company of Gandalf, uh, and when possible Aragorn, and is always is in the largest group and is not is not going to be left alone. Right? Um, yes. Bricktails, I, I do think there's a little bit of uneasiness about Boromir carrying Frodo, even at this point. Um, or I would say it perhaps another perhaps there's another way we could look at it, Bricktails. Maybe something along the lines of um, Aragorn taking it on himself to carry Frodo, rather than asking Boromir to do it. Right. Um, I'm not sure that that need necessarily be read as a um, as a an elm of uh, as evidence of distrust of Boromir necessarily. Um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, you'll remember, of course, in the Peter Jackson film, they played this up particularly with that is one of those sort of strange moments in the film, right? Remember when Frodo falls and the ring somehow falls off his head, right? Like it just, in which case, like that, man, that is the worst ring necklace ever. Um, totally doing it wrong. Um, but, um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, they build the tension with Boromir there to foreshadow, you know, his uh, uh, his desire for the ring and his taking of the ring later on. Although we have already seen Boromir looking at the ring with desire in the Council of Elrond, right? We've seen his eyes gleam as he's looking at the ring. Um, so it's not like there's been no indicator of that. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, right. Uh, JJ points out Aragorn's oath, um, 
if by life or death I can save you, I will. That is true. That is true. Um, however, um, yes, I see people talking about the book versus the film there. That was, of course, one of those. It's one of the moments that makes that moment in the film when it happens at the end of the Council of Elrond um, feel like a montage to me. Right, Aragorn comes up and says to Bill, to Frodo what he says in the book in chapter ten. Gandalf comes up and says what he said way back in chapter two. Um, but um, anyway, uh, one thing I would say about that, though, JJ, that kind of oath can be manipulated, right? If by my life or death I can save you, I will. Should the desire for the ring be working on Aragorn? He could find ways to save his oath and still get the ring. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, like I said, I don't think we need necessarily read this as a moment of distrust for Boromir. But rather a moment of... Uh, again, it... It could well be that he doesn't want to. Um, he doesn't want to lay the like the burden uh, of that. I, being the ring bearer, it's all about it's it's about burden, not privilege, right? Um, and for Aragorn to become a secondhand ring bearer, um, right, which is what happens when you bear the ring bearer, I guess, right? Um, when Aragorn becomes a second-hand ring bearer, uh, he's again. It, it's not about privilege. I think it's. I think it's more about. I think it's more about burden. Um, uh, and I also wonder. We don't see it, right? Because uh, until the point where Frodo is put down on the ground, we're still kind of from Pippin's perspective. Um, and so we see Boromir returning, carrying Sam. So we don't hear what happened when he goes back up the hill. Um, did he offer to carry Frodo? And was there an awkward moment in which Aragorn was like, uh, I think I'll carry Frodo just if it's all the same to you. Um, is that what happened? Um, I don't, um, uh, I don't really know, but, um, yeah, of course, Lincoln is making the connection to, um, uh, to Sam at Mount Doom carrying you know, bearing the ring bearer right up the mountain slope. And certainly if Sam is any indicator there, it certainly is a burden and not a privilege. Right. Um, but, um, but anyway, I, I think I would not rule out the possibility that Boromir volunteered to take Sam. Right. Um, because, he might have anticipated... I mean, given what we've seen from Boromir so far, I wouldn't be in the slightest bit surprised if... surprised if even... if Boromir himself... like, on two different levels, right? Um, if Boromir himself didn't want to create an awkward situation, right? Knew that they don't know him that well and they might begin to wonder or ask questions if he offered to carry Frodo, right? Um, uh, so yeah, it could just be, right, Frodo being the prestige burden, Wobe, exactly. And 
Eric and uh, Boromir having shown a significant amount of humility to this point. Absolutely. Um, but the, um, but at the same time also, even if he were himself feeling the desire of the ring by this time, which I can't rule out, might it even be possible that Boromir is sufficiently self-aware to distance himself from it? We have good reason to think that Boromir is not yet conscious of temptation to the, towards the ring. So I doubt that that last one is the case. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, anyway, um, their, uh, their order is still kind of interesting. All right, it's getting late. Um, we did this passage and we peeked a little bit into the penultimate passage, which we'll start with. We are now two slides away from the end of the chapter. Very exciting. All right. Um, thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us. It's field trip time for those who can remain with us for the field trip. Good night to everybody else. And thanks for joining us for book discussion this evening. Um, I will, yeah, do what I usually do, which is restore myself after my inevitable crash. Um, <laughs> How are you, Valori? I'm doing all right. Good. How are you this evening? Good. Good. I'm good. Um, okay, so this time we're going to head back to that city whose name I'm forgetting. Um, the one in, right in the middle of Rudar there, up on the mountain, where we've been the last few trips. Yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll see once I get there, Apologies. I guess. I just have to raid and add everybody to the raid. Okay, cool. I am re-entering. Karanast, that's the one, Ron. Ah, Karanast. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to go back to Karanast, except instead of backtracking through the city uh, to go look at what turned out to be a uh, an old graveyard with a very peculiar column. Though, uh, Laurie, I wanted to say, mm -hmm. although I didn't see anything shaped like that with that sort of like eight-pointed star shape that that um, fluted uh, obelisk had that we were looking at, I didn't see anything shaped like that. The mm -hmm. gold inlay on top of white background is very like stuff you see all over Minas Tirith. Last Friday during oh. my Griffith stream, when I was running around Minas Tirith, I could not help but notice that there was a lot of that gold on white uh, there. So I think it may be gone. It may be you know, Gondorian. It may be. It may be part of uh, part of that. Oh, I almost hit the wrong uh, <laughs> milestone, and that's always really embarrassing when I do that. When I like do my milestone out to the prancing pony just down the road, like that's yeah, yeah, I can see waste. that. Um, but, um, oh yeah. So dark water, we're going to get to Karathras, but, um, we're going to Wolf Hill and stuff. So I'm kind of waiting till we get through the wolf part and then we can, um, uh, uh, we'll do the whole lot, the whole part of a region that we deliberately skipped until we get through the book section. Okay. So by the stage, okay, so we, we've got to go down, down over there. 
right? To get the so the road starts over here. That's why I wasn't noticing the road. Guy, right? It's right here. Okay, I see. I see. So I was, oh, I was goody, going goody, straight goody. out to the thing. Okay, I see. All right, so we go. We go down the road here. Another set of yep. steps. This was an actual approach then. And notice again how um, this is also not defended. I mean, this, look at, you just got like a, there's no wall here. I mean, this is one of the most easily approachable angles at this place. And there's just a big old flight of steps and no, no real attempt at a wall. The ruins that we see here are not the ruins of a wall that once stood here to defend this spot, but rather just like the towers and bits of the top of the, you know, colonnade up there. I, um, I and, came in late. Where is everybody? <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, go to the go to the stable master at Karanos, uh, which is right yep, just yep, down yep. from the milestone, and then we're right down the hill. From down there. the hill. Oh, okay, okay, that's yeah. right. That's where I went astray. Looking back up here. Yeah, and of course, what's right up there is the pool, right? Uh, I see you. Yep, right. Just yeah, down around the hill there. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't say it's easily accessible because I almost fell off this thing. But well, right, um, it's a danger to people up there. But I'm I'm saying as far as like being concerned about invading armies coming from the east here, this does not uh, seem to have uh, been in. Yeah, that no, direction, I was being so. facetious. <laughs> yeah. um, I get cranky about blind turns. Can we? I want to find. Can we? Can we go up and and just peek? our heads up towards the Lone Lands. I want to follow this. There doesn't look like there's much up there in that direction, but I want to see where it connects to the to the Lone Lands. Yeah, because I remember trying to get over here from the Lone Lands, like, a lot. Um, right. So quite foolishly. If, here's what I'm thinking. Historically, here's what I'm thinking. Hmm. Um, this road is likely to re lead up towards Amonsul, because you'll remember that Amonsul um, was the... Um, Sister of Amun-Hen, I believe. It, yeah, it well, it was the, it was the, um, you know, the point of contention for all three kingdoms, Cardolan and Rudaur and Arthodine, and of course that Amun-Sul is at like a frontier. So here's another one of those hunting lodges, just like mm -hmm. the others. Um, is it burnt out like all the others? It is burnt out mm. like the others. Somebody just came through and torched all the hunting lodges. Apparently, eco terrorists. Um, <laughs> eco terrorists, hunting lodge terrorists. Oh man, yeah. Um, sorry, just looking around, seeing if there are any other, uh, ruins up on the hills. We can see a ruin up on the, uh, cliff in front of us, but I think that might be Loneland stuff mm -hmm. already up there. Um, anyway, so yeah, so, uh, that Arthodyne and Rudauer have their boundaries right there by, um, uh, by Amonsul, by the old Tower of Amonsul. It's, it's fairly clear to see. Cardolan always looked, um a little bit more kind of out of the way, right? But if this road, which is a, a main road that passes right by Karnas, which was clearly a major, uh, a major city for, a major city built in the old days, but taken over by, uh, the, and still clearly a, a major center uh, during the times of Cardolan, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, if this road leads straight up towards Amonsul, then that would make some fairly good sense of this. Mm -hmm. 
Uh-huh. I think I'm seeing... Oh, sorry, I'm getting distracted as I'm peeking out at the ruins out of the corner of my eye there. But I think I spied something on those ruins up on top of the hill there. Yes, I think I did. Oh, good. We're approaching them. And we're still... Yep, we're still in... Cardolan, which makes sense, because what I'm pretty sure I saw was the Tower of Cardolan on one of these ruins up here. Huh. Looked like pretty standard, you know, Arnorian columns and colonnades. Yeah, there it is. There it is. This is the one I was seeing from down the hill. And what is this? A little... Oh, yeah. It looks yeah. like what we see in um, in the Barrow in the Midgewater Marshes, oh. and uh, the Cardolingian part of the Barrow Downs. Right. Oh, it looks a little door here. Oh, that's cute. Oh, that's, oh look at the. We get a close up look at this. It looks looks what, like an apoc- uh There's a broken off piece of the statue here. You can get a better look at it. Oh, yeah. It's like oh, an yeah, like the, the knight statue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Hmm. He's not bearded. Nope. It's an unbearded knight. Unbearded with a sword of the very long hilt. Square face. Mm-hmm. He is not happy to see us. No. No, he does look a tad grumpy. And, uh, and yeah, you're right up here, then we can... Definitely get a closer look at these busts and the tower. Oh, see, look, there's a thing I didn't fully realize. Look how, look how three-dimensional that tower is. Yeah. That you implies we probably saw this tower in the Barrow Downs as well, next to these busts. Maybe in retrospect. Maybe. But, um, but that I don't place is actually seeing yeah. it. But No, I don't remember actually seeing it, but I'm now curious about it. Ah, but I have a theory that could explain that. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's my theory. All right, We know that the castle in the Barrow Downs was built by the people of Cardolan. But mm-hmm. we also know it was where they made their last stand, right? Okay. Which suggests that the castle in the Barrow Downs was, the, was a late construction, right? That That they didn't go visit the Barrow Downs and decide, hey, this is awesome. I want to put up a summer home here, right? Instead, they only fled to the Barrow Downs under duress. And when they were there, they just built a real, a comparatively utilitarian. Um, and like basically, Cardolan had fallen by then, right? So oh, yeah. um, including, you know, their towers down here. So would they have felt it to have been like a mere mockery? You know, for them to have put the Tower of Cardolan now overthrown, right? Uh, you know, on as as their symbol, on the, you know, the castles uh, down there. It seems possible. Feels more like a remember the Alamo kind of thing. Uh, maybe, but uh, but I could imagine them not doing that. Um, oh yeah, look at how it. I never well, the tower. <laughs> it does sort of fit with the whole. Uh, longing for the past sort of thing they do get obsessed with with the, the living do. with the dead living for the dead you know celebrating a 
fallen tower. It's just very right. Victorian. Right, but like I said, since they didn't in the Barrow Downs, then that's uh, what I'm doing is a theory as to why they wouldn't have, because they seemed not to have, because I don't remember that tower being in the Barrow Downs, but maybe I'm wrong. Mm. Maybe it is. Just because we don't remember it doesn't mean it wasn't there. True. True. That is certainly true. Just because I don't remember doesn't mean it didn't happen is kind of a theme of my life, so anyway. I have so, no memory of this place. <laughs> right. I say that all the time, right? Uh, I say that in the parking lot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, So, yeah, homework. Homework for anyone who plays. What this... Right, the the tower relief in the the Barrow Downs. Um, Mm -hmm. What this would have been. We've got these freestanding columns out here. This frankly weird archway, which looks more like I don't know, is this is this a doorway? It's arched like it's curved inwards, the whole thing. It looks almost more like vaulting that had the middle of it knocked out than it does uh, look like a doorway. Yeah. Yeah, it's curved inwards, the whole thing. And that would be weird. Yeah, it's like a it's like a Maybe we're only seeing part of the building. It's it's a bit like um the the trans the transect of a of a church, you know, where the two parts meet is where you get the big domed vaulting. Maybe. Yeah, maybe this was some kind of temple or something up here. It's possible. It is on a high spot. Now it's on a high spot near a boundary, but especially if this were now and I saw somebody somebody was talking about Rowan, yeah. Um Rowan was suggesting that if we go back up here, right, Oof. that these busts are built over top of the stars. You can see the stars underneath them, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so you've got the, and I, you could even suggest that there's the, there's the flat elements. Like these stars are two-dimensional stars, right? And then you've yeah. got the stuff that pops out that was built up on top of it. You've got the, the tower. Mm-hmm. is a, three, a three-dimensional relief tower. You've got the busts, of course, that come out, and then you've got the the star up above that is also three, weirdly three-dimensional, as we huh. looked at before. Um, and so, oh. potentially, the implication would be that um, uh, all of the 3D stuff is new, right, is second mm-hmm. epoch of Cardolan. Um and the other, you know, the flat stuff is uh, is original. Um, Does explain why we saw the busts in the Barrow Downs. Exactly. So, uh, whatever this was, and yeah, Temple Tomas. I mean, I f- also feel a little sheepish suggesting Temple because that w- suggests something about religious practices that we really don't know about. I mean. Um, yeah. No, my, my comment was more about architecture than, than yeah. purpose. Yeah. Um, you, you've got the vaulting right when you have two long corridors intersecting with each other in, in a, in a okay. four-way sure. intersection. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if the remains are down this hill. <laughs> but it does explain why. So this spot, we're right on the boundary, right? I mean, we're mm-hmm. just... Uh, south of the Lone Lands uh, here. And um, if we 
which means in the days in Epoch two, that is in the days of the Arnorian civil war, um, we might have built something like a watchtower or a keep up here on this hilltop on the boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what was built here by the old Arnorians. Instead, they built whatever this was, which seems to be much more pleasant. I can even notice even this doorway, right? I mean, you don't build a ground level doorway in a wall in a keep like this. Like that's that would be silly. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure. Anyway, let's let's. I want to see where we we're gonna come out. Pretty sure we're gonna come out near Weathertop. It's gonna be that um, what is it called? Aerial something or other. Huh. Uh, isn't it something like that? Minas Ariel, yeah. That's what I thought. Ah, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, with the goblins. I remember Minas Ariel was where I first encountered a goblin who kept screaming posthumously, and it really freaked me out. <laughs> you know what goblins do? Where they yeah, keep shouting they, at you long they after they die. They scream when they're alive. They scream when they're dead. They're just, that's just a thing that they do. <sighs> okay. You know, like cats. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So I remember. Oh, boy. This really takes me back. I haven't quested. Oh, here in oh man, so man, long. man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, right. Where cool. you go down here and you can you can go left and you go down into that valley with a. Or you can go up to the right. Hundreds and, of wargs. Yeah. So many wargs and goblins. Oh, that's here. so cool. It connects now. Right. And now we've got this. Uh, now the road over the hill. So yeah, so this will come out, and it will come out quite near. Um, this this comes straight out into the road, not far from the Forgotten... There it is, the Forgotten Inn, right there. Mm-hmm. Um, forsaken. Forsaken, what did I say? Yeah. Forgotten? Yes, the Forsaken Inn. Oh yes, and the spiders, there are spiders down in the valley down there, right? Yes. No, it yeah, was yeah. Forsaken, you forgot, so... Kind of yeah, I, I forget. I forgot that it was forsaken because, and then Weathertop is right there. Yeah, there we are. Yeah. So yeah, so we can see that there is. Uh, we can see how the map functions to sort of provide a, a clear glimpse of how Amansul, why Amansul would be strategically important to the people of Cardolan as well as mm-hmm. to the, um, uh, 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 to the people of, because if we look at the Lonelands map, right, um, we have had the the road, the Great East Road, was kind of the boundary between Arthodyne in the south and and Rudaur in the north. Um, Mm -hmm. But we see that this is is kind of uh, where Cardolan comes up and touches that. Minas Ariel, if I'm remembering, was, this is Arthodyne, right? Isn't it? An Arthodynian... Thing. Oh, it's been so long. Hang on. No, not that valley. Again, yeah, okay, every little turn in these hills. Uh, uh, it's nice they added away. the heather, though. The heather's a nice touch. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I haven't been here since the beautification. Um, but yeah, if I'm... Gentrifying the neighborhood. <laughs> right. If I'm remembering... Oh... Uh, Let's if I'm oh, you're going to that here. one. Okay. Yeah, I just want because I just want to see the architecture. I, I don't think we. Yeah, I was headed for the other one. 
Okay, right, sure. I don't think we get Rudarin crowns here. I think this is Arthodine, if I'm remembering correctly. Because I'm pretty sure that when we looked at this, when we went through the Lone Lands before, yeah. Yeah, we're just getting, yep, just, it looks like, um, what's it called? You know, the uh, worst kept secret in the, uh, in the North Downs. <laughs> Esteltine, yeah. Um, yeah, and elements of uh, old Bree. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I don't see the Rudaran crown anywhere. But as I recall from our investigation of the Lone Lands, um, it was fairly consistent on the map that everything south of the road was Arthodyne and then everything north was Rudaur until we got over the bridge um, mm -hmm. out uh, in the Trollshaws. We did have Rudaur and stuff that was down. Uh, yeah, like that's... Some of the stuff by Talbruin in and down there was Rudaur mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. well. Um, but, um, but yeah, so like the Rudaur and Arthodyne are the, the two really, like, like, again, as they're represented in the Lotro geography, in any case, those were the two, like, big ones. Carlin lost first, right? Clearly. Mm -hmm. Of the three. Um, and then it was kind of down to the two. Um, and, um, and yes, Arthodyne maintained control of Amonsul, again, which you can tell because of uh, Arvedui getting the Palantir from there, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but yes, so, so even though Cardolan would surely have been like in third place for the race to Amonsul, right? For, to the, you know, the, the, the attempt to control Amonsul, you can certainly see how, uh, why it would have been important, right? Why, why it would, because if they could have expanded their territory a little bit, they would be, um, they'd be dominating this whole area and it would, it would have meant a, a significant shift in the power dynamics between Cardolan and Arthodyne and and, uh, and Rudauer. You could almost imagine that controlling Weathertop was like the people of Cardolan's last hope to really compete. Uh, oh, up yeah. Here, uh, and keep Arthodyne and, and Rudauer at bay. Um, but anyway, interesting. I wonder if we've seen any ruins that were once from Cardolan, but they were defaced or rearranged. Yeah, I don't remember that, but it's possible... I mean, it's possible that that's even true here in Minas Ariel, geographically mm -hmm. speaking, I mean, right? Because... Mm -hmm. um, can we get up here? Can we... No. You can if you go around. Okay, I know, I was trying to avoid going around. Oh, I just made it and then slipped off. Oh, well. Anyway, um... Uh, this would be because there's nothing that's distinctively Arthodyne about this either. The only reason I'm judging that this looks like Arthodyne instead of Rudaur is that this uh, is that it doesn't have you know, it's the absence of the Rudauran crowns. Oh, here we'll yeah. get around up there. It does um, make me wonder if we look for certain types of damage or, or uh, right? Yeah. Stonework. See, look at this. Uh, Look above this door he, right here where I am, right? We've got the stars, um, the two-dimensional stars, not arranged in exactly the same pattern that we were seeing up on top of the hill just now, for instance. Um, but, of course, there's no Cartilingen Tower that's been imposed onto that, right? Yeah, everything's um, kind of generic and blank. We do get the Scepter of Anuminus, 
over there, uh-huh. which does seem like a, a slightly Arthurian thing, but that, um, you know, it's also quite possible that this. No, well, that's actually kind of interesting over there. Um, if we're ignoring the heads on spikes. Kind of hard to ignore them. Yeah, I know. Especially when they stick out like that. Um, yeah, look, not only do we get the big old scepter of Anuminus here. Look at look at our dude. Yeah, we got our Apotki. Yeah, look, there's our, there's our square-jawed, disapproving-looking dude, except he's full-length now, instead of just the top half of him. We're face grumpy pants. And these tombs look just like the tombs of the kings that we can see in South Bree, which I remember speculating might be Cardo and Cardo and Cardo and Jim. Yeah. And then over here, where that scepter does look pretty shiny and new over there, actually. Right. Then up here. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to not fall off the cliff, but look up at those yeah, those dude statues up there. And it now occurs to me that the knight, the knight relief statue that we saw up on the hill in Cardolan territory was not on the wall, but off the wall. Hmm. Could it have actually been removed? Oh, like knocked. Yeah, and could have been knocked down. Yeah. Um. Right. So perhaps what we're seeing here—the huge, garish scepter of Anuminus, which does seem to be an Arthedanian symbol here—might um, mm-hmm. have been erected here after the fact. So it's possible. I, I would. I, I. You know, we couldn't rule out. And certainly geographically speaking, if this place were a fortress of Cardolan, um, right on their perimeter, right, right on their frontier here. Uh-huh. Um, and from which they were trying to then control Weathertop. Uh-huh. That would, that would make sense. And again, I think I stand by what we said before that this looks like it's Arthedanian, but as you say, it's possible that it was only secondhand, uh, secondhand Arthedanian fortress reclaimed from the the Cardo engines when the Cardo engines were defeated. Oh, is there any chance the two factions teamed up to join forces against Rudar? It's possible, but again, here in this area would be the place they would be least likely to be teaming up because no, they're all three too, fighting over Amansul. It's too contentious. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it it does make more sense though that the Arthedanians took the Carolingian stuff, knocked it off the walls, and put their stuff on top of it to say, "Hey, this is our that we we won. We got the right. We, got the, we won the, exactly. The exactly. Because you, if you think about it, the Arthedanians, if the Arthedanians had Amunsul, which is right across the street here, right, they mm-hmm. wouldn't have needed to build Minas Ariel. Like, why would they have built this place over here? When they already had Amansul right over there, mm-hmm. right, um, and so, but it would make sense if they didn't build it. The Cardolingians built it. The Arthedanians had Amansul. The Cardolingians built this down here. The um, Rudaurans were coming in here from Agamar, right? Mm-hmm. They had they had their strong point here at Agamar. Um, so between Agamar and Minas Ariel and Amansul. 
then we had the the three-way contention here in this area. The Cartilingians failing first and then fleeing back to the south and to the west, right? Towards the uh-huh. Barrow Downs. Um, and um, It's a big staring match between... Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that works. Anyway. Seems a sound theory, at the very mm-hmm. least. It would be fun to find some evidence, like smoking gun evidence, of like a an imperfectly, you know, demolished cartilagean tower above a door or something like that. But that seems a little much to ask. Um, so, interesting. Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, this complex is very large, more of a living space than the Watchtower Row, and I agree with you. Although Amansul would have been more than just a spire, right? It's It was pretty huge. Um, yeah, it's a shadow of its former self. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty huge back in the day. Um, but uh, anyway, all right. Well, I should let folks go. It's getting late. Thanks, Gravity everybody. Makes for of jo- us all, man. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Next week, we were just going to head back to my map here. Uh, next week, we will um, we'll start at Karnost again, our central point, and then we'll head out on the, on the, instead of heading north on the road, we will head out to the east and begin to explore the South Downs in earnest here next week. As we continue our Cardolan exploration. Thanks, everybody. Um, I'll be back for Mythgard Academy tomorrow night, talking more about dwarves. And we'll see folks then, or we'll see folks next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.